This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading for this morning is Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 62, starting in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Good morning, Redeemer. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Uh, Before we get started, I do want to clear something up real quick. If you saw Mark coming in, you saw that he and I are wearing almost exactly the same thing. Um, And if you've been keeping track, that happens too often. Um, We don't actually coordinate our wardrobes is what I want you to hear this morning. Um, some, Some traditions have vestments and robes. We have denim, and that's just the way that it is. I'm not happy about it, but that's the way that it is. Hey, before we uh, jump into Isaiah, a couple things uh, that I'd love to make you aware of. Uh, we have a lot of things kind of on our calendar coming up, ways that you can get involved at the church, uh, build community, pursue deeper walk, knowledge of God. Um, you can find out a lot about that in the bulletin that you received on our website also. I do want to bring your attention to two different things we have going on. The first one is this discipleship lab that we have starting up next Sunday. It's going to be Sunday afternoons for six weeks, about an hour and a half. And really, this is designed for people who are not yet connected to a community group uh, at Redeemer. Uh, it's a place where we can come together, get to know each other, and learn what does it mean to be a disciple, to study scripture, to pray together, to live in the ways that we believe the Lord has called us to live as his people. Um, So you can find out more information about that on the website, or you can talk to Wyatt Beery uh, or me anytime this week. We would love to have you jump in if you uh, are looking for a way to get connected here. The second is our DNA class, which we have coming up on March 4th and 5th. We try to host these uh, a few times a year. Um, Sometimes we do multi-week classes. We're doing kind of an intensive format this weekend, so if you're interested in pursuing membership, call and Redeemer, your church home. This is where we kind of dive into our story, our beliefs, our values, what we're committed to trying to walk through and do together. So it's going to be a Friday evening and then Saturday um, morning through kind of early afternoon in two weeks. Uh, If you are curious about Redeemer, curious about calling at your home, we would love to see you uh, there for that Friday, Saturday weekend. All right, with that, uh, let's pray and then see what Isaiah 62 has for us. God, you are, you're worthy of everything, absolutely everything. 
When, when we sang that you were worthy of it all, like we're not exaggerating. Uh, and in fact, like our words, our singing can't even come close to your holiness, to what you actually are worthy of. Um, so, so thank you that you're not far away, that you're not inaccessible. You're the God who made everything. You're the God who dwells in unapproachable light, who brings light to darkness, who um, will not stop until you have redeemed your people. And so our hope is in you this morning. Our hope is in the fact that you're not done yet that you're still going to be faithful to all the promises that you've, you've made and that you make your promises um, because you love us, because you are overwhelming love. So will you open our hearts? Will you open our minds? Will you open our ears to see you, know you, love you, and follow you? I pray all of this in your name. Amen. Hey, so when you walked in, you passed words on a wall. It's our, it's our mission. And at, and at the core of our mission, the core of what we want to do as a church is experience transformation. We exist to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. If you've attended Redeemer for more than a few weeks, you've probably heard that like slogan more times than like it's, it's just something that's kind of faded into the background. But... We believe that the grace of Jesus changes everything. We think that if everything we see in Scripture is true, then it changes everything. It changes the way that we relate to God, that we can approach him not as slaves, but as sons, daughters, members of a family. It means that we can lay aside our own agendas and selfishness and actually genuinely love each other, love our neighbors, love our city. The grace of Jesus changes everything. Absolutely everything. And I think that's something that I've realized over the last few weeks as I've thought about what, what transformation means, what transformation looks like. So often I think of change and transformation just in really uh, kind of personal, individualistic terms and levels. So how can I change to be more generous, less cowardly, more brave? How can I be less angry and more loving? I, I'm really focused on myself and how I can change. And what I want to say is all those things are really important. The gospel of Jesus does promise actual personal change. But what I think that what I've often missed and what I think that we can miss because we live in a really individualistic society is that in the Bible, in this passage, transformation and change happens corporately, in a community, in a people. That's why we say we exist to cultivate communities of transformed disciples. And all of that sounds really great when we say it abstractly, that transformation and change is possible through the grace of Jesus for you, for all of us together. But there comes a point when we're confronted with our own personal failings, when it seems we've been stuck in the same place for a really long time and we're not actually moving or changing anywhere. Sometimes it feels like we're getting worse for ourselves personally. You can grow really frustrated, right? That's not even talking about what 
what it looks like when you see all the failings, the hypocrisy of the broader people of God, right? Is change actually possible? I think that's a question that all of us have to wrestle with and face at some point in our lives. And when we're in that place where we're confronted with the gap between what the gospel promises and what life actually looks like, it's really easy to let go of hope and just kind of slip into cynicism, despair, and apathy. And it's into that gap in that space that God through Isaiah 62 says, hey, I will not be silent until everything that I have promised about what I am going to do in my people comes to pass. I will not keep quiet until salvation comes, until light overcomes darkness. And if you're tired of hearing the same sermon kind of over and over again for the last 22 chapters, Isaiah 62 says, hey, there's still more to say. There's still more to go. There's still more of God's word and work and promises that you and I and all of us need to hear about what God is doing in and through his people and how he thinks and sees us. So really what I want to, I just want to convince you of one thing today. It's that the Lord loves his people. Jesus loves his church passionately and is unbreakably committed to her good, even especially when she is at her worst and most embarrassing. Jesus is passionately committed to his people. That's what Isaiah 62 is all about. It's about the promise that God is committed to doing whatever it takes to express his love to his people. He is committed to her growth, to her good, and will do anything to save her. God is going to redeem, rescue, and restore his bride. And so what I want to do today in our few verses in Isaiah 62 is go, just go through this passage three times. Um, and I want to ask three questions as we go through it. The, the first time, I just want to say, hey, okay, what, what does this say? Uh, how do I understand and explain what's going on in these verses? What does God uh, want, to, want us to know Second, I want to ask, okay, if that's what it says, then what does it mean? What does it mean about who God is? What does it mean about who we are? What does it mean about what we should expect to experience from God in our midst? And then third, I want to ask, okay, in light of all that, what should we do? How should we live? How should we change? So um, that's all I want to do today. Let's jump in. All right, Isaiah 62. First of all, what, what, what is this saying? What's, what's the main point? The main point that Isaiah wants you to walk away with is that God is going to be faithful to, re- to his promises to redeem Jerusalem. God's going to be faithful to that. All throughout the book of Isaiah, um, God has been making promises to this city. And one of the biggest questions and tension points that we're facing is, hey, is there actually hope for these people? Because they're pretty jacked up. 
It's, they, they are a mess. From the opening pages of Isaiah, we're confronted with really honest assessments of their failure, their sin, and their humiliation. Uh, turn, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Let's just get a refresher. Uh, it should be on page 567 of that pew Bible in front of you. If you don't remember us preaching through this like 13 months ago, I'm just going to give a reminder. So Isaiah starts uh, by delivering this word to the people of Judah and specifically Jerusalem. And listen to how God describes Jerusalem in Isaiah 1, starting in verse 21. It says, How the faithful city has become a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. He says there's been this flip, this change, this negative transformation. It used to be this beacon of justice, righteousness, the presence of God, and now all of that is gone. Your silver has become dross, corrupted. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. You're selfish. You're just in it for what you can get out of whatever situation you're in. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, because of all of this, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy." And so we, from, from the beginning of the book, we, we see this really critical assessment of Jerusalem, the same Jerusalem that is being talked about in Isaiah chapter 62, where there was once justice, there's now injustice, where there was once generosity uh, and faithfulness, there is now wickedness and self-centeredness. And God says, hey, I'm not going to stand that. I'm not going to let that continue. He is actually committed to purging the wickedness and evil out of her. Why, though? That why is a really important question. He wants to do that for the restoration of Zion and for his people. Look at verse 26. So, so with all of that, he says, hey, I'm going to restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. This is 126. Afterward, after all of this, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. So this, this is the promise that Isaiah starts out on. He takes an honest look at the way that things are and he says, hey, for your sake, I will bring redemption and salvation. And the rest of Isaiah, all the 61 chapters that we've been through so far have been the working out of those promises and the tension about whether or not God is actually going to be able to do what he says that he's going to do. Because Jerusalem humiliated herself. Like, she was a city full of pride that had been completely destroyed and overturned by Babylon and lost everything. Like, Jerusalem didn't exist anymore. These people are in exile. They're slaves in Babylon. When people in the outside world thought of Jerusalem, they didn't think of this center of justice, righteousness, the presence of God, things being the way they're supposed to be. No, when they thought of Jerusalem, they thought of political, economic, and spiritual failure. 
despite their best efforts, they failed, which is why when people looked at them, words like forsaken and desolate, words that we have in Isaiah 62, came to mind. And so it's into that space, that setting, that environment, that God's words come thundering in like a bolt of lightning into a dark and hopeless people. The good news that Isaiah wants you to know in 62 is that even though the worst has happened, God is in the business of reversal and redemption. Which has been just the same message that he's been saying over and over and over again for the last 22 chapters, that God is going to bring hope and transformation into hopeless places. And if you're getting like tired of this same sermon, Isaiah 62 says, hey, I'm not going to keep silent. There's still more to say. There's still more to hear for Zion's sake. I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until... Her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Think about, think about the people who were listening to these words after sitting in exile for more than 70 years. Like the people hearing these words, some of them were young when they went into exile and now they're old. Some of them are born into exile. They've lived a lifetime of failure and disappointment. It's been a lifetime of silence from God. And what God wants them to hear over and over and over again is that he loves them. He loves their city. He is committed to working for Zion's, for Jerusalem's sake. And he won't be quiet until they see it happen, until her righteousness, your translations say, her vindication comes like the sun. And when that happens, verse 2, the nations are going to see this righteousness shining like the sun, and they're going to realize that they were wrong about Jerusalem. God actually hadn't forsaken them. They weren't a desolate city. And God is going to give them a new name and a new status personally. Instead of slaves, they're going to be signs of God's glory, majesty, and rule. Do you see that in verse 3? God says, you, Jerusalem, you fallen city, will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The city itself is going to be a sign of God's glory, beauty, majesty, and rule over all the world. And verse 4 gives us what the new names of the city will be. Instead of forsaken, instead of desolate, her new name is going to be Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. And Beulah, married. Why? Because the Lord delights in you. The message that God sends to a lonely, hopeless people sitting in exile is that the God whom they feared was absent is ultimately going to be so near to them, so with them, and so for them that they're going to be like a bride under him. And God is going to rejoice over that city the same way that a groom rejoices over his bride on a wedding day. 
One of my favorite things about doing weddings is after the processional has, all, has, has taken place and everyone knows that the bride is the next one coming in um, and there's like this anticipation for um, like the bride to be revealed and to come down the aisle and I love to look at the groom whenever that happens because there's just like this look of anticipation and like finally after all the um, anxiety, after all the planning, after all the stress, after um, getting through our relationship, we're finally at this place where everything that we hoped would happen is actually coming true. And there's just like joy, there's tears, like dudes I've never seen cry before, just like babies melting down. It's beautiful, it's amazing. And what Isaiah says is when God thinks about his people, that's how he does it. It's like a groom in anticipation for his bride to finally come to him. Everything in these five verses points to the fact that, as one writer says, never, 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 in any circumstance whatsoever, God will not fail. And the love of God that will never fail is a passionate gladness, which is what we mean when we talk about the covenant love of God, right? The Old Testament is full of covenants, God's covenant is not some disinterested, disembodied legal thing that's like, well, I signed off on it, so I have to do it. No, God's love propels him, compels him to actually put his name on the line, to actually say that no matter what, I will not stop and I will not rest until my people can be redeemed. And the closest that he can come to explain that kind of love is by comparing it to a wedding with a bride and a groom rejoicing over each other. So that's what it says. That's what these five verses are about. The scandalous, never-stopping love of God to rescue, redeem, and transform his broken, sinful, wayward people. So if that's what it says, what does it mean? It means that God will not stay quiet. God will not stop until he has done everything that he promised to do for his people. Because remember, Jerusalem functions a couple different ways in this book. There's the actual physical city on a hill 3,000 years ago facing real threats and a real historical time that Isaiah is saying real things to. But if we're paying attention, we see that Jerusalem represents the people of God in all times and all places, right? Their problems are all pro- are our problems. They're, they're not the only ones who have been prideful, self-reliant, selfish, trying to make their own way. We do that all the time. And so the promises that God has here for Jerusalem are the same promises that he has for his people in all times and all places, which is to say, these are the promises that he makes to his church. This is how he views his church, which one of the most discouraging things to me about going through seminary was my church history class. Like, it was so depressing because it's just like, all right, So Jesus dies, he ascends to the Father, and then everyone just starts fighting. And they kind of fought and had a bunch of conflict, and everyone thought that they knew the right way for like 2,000 years, and now here we are in this denomination that got it right, finally, it's going to be great, until some new conflict arises and we just like decide to go do our own new thing. Like, our, our history and our story is really messy. It's really discouraging. 
And it's to that history that God says, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about this actual people. I'm not talking about some idealized, abstract church group of people, big C church that has it all together. I am passionately committed to working for my people's sake. Even at our worst, most fumbling, failing, hypocritical way. And remember, Isaiah is not a blind optimist, right? He's not just pretending that things aren't as bad as, they, um, as people think they are. Like Isaiah 1, the rest of Isaiah is pretty straightforward and brutal. God is committed to cleansing and purging evil from his people. He's not going to turn a blind eye to things. But the reason he does that is because he loves his church. And he will not stop until he establishes righteousness in his people and salvation shines forth, glory shines forth like the burning sun. But, again, our heritage is a lot of selfishness, right? So we show up into these places most of the time not thinking, hey, what is God doing like for the sake of his people here, like all these people? A lot of times we show up thinking, okay, like, what's in this for me here? What can I get out of this? Um, How can God serve me? And so Ray Ortland describes the spiritual, like, apathy, lethargy that a lot of us and a lot of our churches, especially in the West, are facing right now. He describes the church this way. He says, we're being changed not by the gospel, but by a hyper-individualistic ethos of devotion to self. We're really selfish and focused on what's best for me. And then he says, complicating that, complicating that, that fact is that many people have been wounded by the church. He says, personally, the worst experiences of my life have been within the church. So why go back in? Like, why go back in if there seems to be such a disconnect from what God says about he's going to do with his people and the actual reality of so many of our experiences? And Grandpa Ray says, that's just my nickname for him. He says, why go back in? Because of God. Because God has made an everlasting covenant with his church And her salvation will go forth like a burning torch. God is going to build his church. God is going to establish righteousness. He's going to establish justice. All of the talk that we've seen in the last few chapters about light overcoming darkness is not just an abstract metaphor for good overcoming evil. In Isaiah 62, light coming and pushing back darkness looks like righteousness being revealed in his people. It looks like walking in the ways of God. It looks like conforming to who God is, trusting in what he said he would do, and trusting in the fact that no matter what, he's given us a new name. He's given us a new status identity that cannot be overturned, which means that one day there is going to be a reversal of reputation and a new status and name for God's people, for God's church. 
despite our failure, the ways we made fools of ourselves, the New Testament says that this, like, strange collection of people here in Lenexa on a Sunday is actually the bride of Christ that he deeply, deeply loves the same way a groom loves his bride on their wedding day. God adores his people. God adores his church, and even at her worst, he is endlessly committed to her good. And that's what he's asking you to trust in today. That despite everything, God is at work, and God will be faithful to all of his promises. So if that's true, that's what this passage means, what should we do? Uh, as, as, a, as a church, collectively, like, we, we hold this up and say, no, th- this is who we are. Like, this is who God has called us to be. We are a people who aren't forsaken. We're actually beloved. We're people that God delights in. And we live like that's true. And we follow him in his ways. Like, because he has made us righteous, we pursue righteousness. We follow after him no matter what. We hold on to his word. We, we, we hold on to his promises. Uh, that's what we do collectively. As individuals, like for you, how do you take this out? I have three suggestions on how you can respond to this passage. And the first one is really simple. You can love the church the way that Jesus loves the church. For, like, guys, for as long as I can remember, I've been really judgmental and cynical about the church. And like... I might say rightfully so. I've had some weird experiences. Um, when I was in college, I remember having a conversation with a pastor in town. I was just like, man, I love the idea of like the big C church. I see, I see it in, in the Bible, but it's just like, it's just embarrassing and out of touch, you know, whenever, whenever I go there. Maybe you resonate, maybe you feel the same way a lot of times. Um, it's easy to let that cynicism be the loudest voice instead of the loudest voice being like, this is the bride that Jesus actually died for and loves passionately. And so, I remember the church is the people. The church is the people of God. It's not just the building, it's not just the staff, it's not just the pastors, those are all part of what it means to be the church. But we like love the church when we show up together, when we love each other when we are in our community groups and we actually like don't back away and try to get to the other side of the room from the awkward person. We, we actually like love the church by loving the difficult and awkward people in the church. We act like Jesus acted towards us by sacrificing for each other, by loving each other, by going the extra mile to see Christ formed in each other. Because, again, Ray Wolverine said, to God, the most important thing in all of reality is his church. Think about that. The most important thing in all created reality to God is his church, which is a crown of beauty in his hand. So don't let cynicism Despair, be the loudest voice. Let the promises of God compel you to actually love the church the same way that Jesus loved the church. The second suggestion I have for you beyond just loving the church is embrace your name. 
Because this, this passage is speaking corporately, right? It is speaking to a people, but what is true of God's people is actually true of you if you are in Christ. So in Jesus, you are not forsaken and alone. He's actually given you a name that literally means my delight is in you. Think about that. That is God's nickname for you. My delight is in her. My delight is in him. Fundamentally, that is how God sees you. When I moved to Chicago in 2011, I had like the worst crisis of identity I've ever experienced in my life. Um, I moved up there. I didn't know anyone, and I was all alone, and I was failing at things I was normally really good at, and I was just like, just super disoriented. All the things I thought I could count on for who I was felt like they weren't working anymore. And what's worse than that, have you ever been in the place where you realize that most of your problems are actually your fault and not someone else's fault? Like, I I was in that place. Um, And I literally did not know who I was. Like, I, I remember going for a walk one day and ending up, like, two miles away from my apartment. Um, I was like, well, how did I get here? Um, and it was like, the, the entire time, I was literally thinking, hey, I don't know who I am. Like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And for me, the way out of that was actually passages like this in the Bible. Because, like, oh, like, it is my fault. I have done really bad things. And God says, my delight is in you. God says that I'm his son. God says that come what may, he's with me. And so that's a deeper, more lasting name that he's given you if you're in Jesus than anything else. So embrace that. When you are feeling forsaken, when you are feeling desolate, when you are feeling alone, What God has to say about you is actually more real than that. So hold on to that. Don't let anything or anyone take that away from you. Embrace your name. Third, finally, we say this every week, repent and believe the gospel. Because all of life is repentance. All of life is realizing that we were going the right way, maybe, and then all of a sudden we're off course and going after something else, and all of our attention is focused on um, building our brand, building our identity, building our name, our reputation this way. And repentance means, like, oh my goodness, like, I've gotten off track. I need to turn around and go after my first love. Go after what God actually says about who I am, what he has called me to do. And so if you're here today, Jesus is calling you to turn away from, repent from, whatever it is that you're following, and come after him. Because the gospel that we believe says that Jesus does not love us abstractly. Jesus does not love us in theory. He loves us like a groom coming for his bride, which is, what our gospel, which is what we believe. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about a groom who sets out to rescue and redeem his bride, even though he knows it's going to cost him his life. That's the price of redemption. God's love moves him to do whatever it takes to win his bride. And the New Testament says, hey, this is a profound mystery that we shouldn't just rush past. And even though we are living in this gap right now, right, between 
like our righteousness isn't fully revealed. We see tons of things away that we're, they're not supposed to be. Like one day, these words of restoration are actually going to come finally, fully, ultimately, never endingly true. And John in Revelation 21 says that on that day when God restores everything and makes it right again, it looks like this. He says, I saw the holy city, that city, the Isaiah 1 city, but changed. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What will he do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And everything about what we do here today is looking forward to that day. Because through his death and resurrection, Jesus is making his people ready. His bride is beautiful. He gives us his righteousness, his goodness, his love in exchange for our sin and our shame. And he says that he's never going to leave us or forsake us. He's given us his spirit as a sign and seal that we're part of his people. And that he's coming for us again someday. And every week he reminds us of the blood-bought promises that he will be faithful to prepare through this meal, through communion, which is an appetizer, a preparation for the ultimate wedding feast that God says he's going to spread for his people in a new, redeemed Jerusalem. And so if you believe that, then you're a Christian and this meal is for you. Come take it. Remember the tangible grace of God given to you for your sake, that God will not be silent and he will not stop until he accomplishes everything he means to do in his people. The way that we do communion here at Redeemer, we have, uh, we'll have three stations down front, one station in the balcony, uh, two stations down here on either side will be bread, juice, and wine. You can tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the stoneware, which is wine, or the glass, which is juice. Uh, and if you are not comfortable sharing a common cup or you need a gluten-free option, we will have a self-serve single station right here in the middle that you can take. Same thing is true in the balcony. Um, if you're not a Christian, this is the God we believe in. Like, we believe in a God who will not stop until he makes all things new, until he puts everything right again, and he's inviting you to get in on that. He wants to make you part of his family. So instead of taking communion, I'd love to invite you to pray with someone. We'll have people who will be down here up front who would love to pray with you. If you are just in need of prayer in general, uh, we would love to pray with and for you. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'll pray. Those of you who want to take communion uh, can come forward to the front, um, and then we'll sing worship and be done here. So let's pray. So Jesus, thank you that you are making all things new. Thank you that you will not stay silent, that you will not stop until our righteousness goes forth as brightness and our salvation as a burning torch. God, you've given us a name. You've given us a place in your family. You love us. And you're not going to stop. So 
So will you give us grace to believe? Will you give us grace to follow you? And thank you that you're not done here. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Come when you're ready.